Welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week in Episode 3, we'll start the history of the Kelly Gang in earnest. In the previous episode, number 2, we ran through an overview of the Kelly story, so we'll move on now and begin considering the narrative in depth. Today, we'll look at the Kelly family background and at Ned's early childhood. But before I begin, let me remind you that Extra supporting material for this episode can be found on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Ned Kelly's story begins in Beveridge, Victoria, where he was born in 1854. No official documents record the actual date, but it is presumed to be late November or early December of that year. Ned's father, like so many of his countrymen during that era, came to Australia as a convict. John Kelly, an Irishman from Tipperary, arrived in Van Diemen's Land in January 1842 to serve the last six years of his seven-year sentence for stealing two pigs. I can't stop the image of him dashing over the green Irish landscape with a fat pig under each arm. (laughs) But no doubt it was no laughing matter for him, or for the pig's owners, or indeed for the pigs. Van Diemen's Land, of course, was a major penal settlement at that time, and was later renamed Tasmania, perhaps to help remove that criminal taint. Certainly contemporary Tasmania is a delightful place, now full of tourists from the mainland rather than convicts. It's just beautiful, and it's one place that has retained many of its original historic buildings from those early convict times. Despite John Kelly's experience being a common one, Red, as he was known to his friends, so named for his flaming red hair apparently, was unusually quiet about his convict background, and rarely spoke of it after becoming a free man in the years that followed. Now, just as an aside, I find this a little shocking, that a man could be called red for the colour of his hair. I'm not sure if Australians are known as contrarians in general, but tradition holds, for most of the 20th century at least, that any red-headed bloke living in the bush or the outback really should be called bluey. (laughs) I guess we have to accede to the nickname red, acceptable for its time though. Clearly they hadn't yet fully developed the Aussie sense of (laughs) humour. Anyway, getting back to Red then, there was some speculation that he may have informed on the others involved in the pig theft in Ireland in order to reduce his sentence from a potential life term. If so, that may be why he chose to keep his personal history close to his chest. An informer was no one's friend in the convict-saturated colonies. Records show that he caused little trouble serving his sentence and he did his best to steer clear of the law for many years. Red was given his ticket of leave in July 1845, three years early. The ticket of leave probably equates most closely with what we would refer to now as parole. You're let out early, with some conditions, and must be of good behaviour, which quite frankly one should be at all times, even if not on parole. So the government saved some dough, not having to feed and clothe you, and you got to support yourself in the new world under whatever conditions were attached usually conditions such as not leaving the area without permission, for example. If you didn't re-offend, you eventually became a free man. He seems to have made his way successfully during that period, and having gained his certificate of freedom in January 1848, 
He then headed straight across the water to Melbourne, Victoria. (laughs) Couldn't get away from that prison state quickly enough. At that time, though, Melbourne was still known as the colony of Port Phillip, and it was there Red Kelly began building a new life as a free man. Ned's mother, Ellen Quinn, was also Irish-born, in County Antrim, but emigrated to Australia with her family as free assisted immigrants. Her father, James Quinn, hoped to improve his family's prospects in the new country and to provide opportunities for his three sons. Settling in Melbourne, they prospered, moving from the small holdings in Mooney Ponds to Broadmeadows, on to Beveridge, and later settling in nearby Wallen. These place names are still recognisable places around Melbourne, though of course rather than being settlements in rural settings, they're pretty much all suburbs of the now sprawling metropolis. Google any of these names and you should find them marked on maps north of the city. So the Quins had settled into the area in 1844, and four years later, the newly freed Kelly, having made some money from gold digging and horse trading, settled at nearby Beveridge too, to farm and work as a local fencer and wood splitter. It was there that he met Jimmy Quinn and his family, including the young Ellen. The Quinns were not very keen on Ellen's developing relationship with the ex-convict Kelly. It's probable he was suspiciously evasive about his past, and he was quite a bit older than Ellen, at least 12 years older. It's also possible he may already have been displaying a weakness for drink, which generally doesn't indicate good prospects in a potential son-in-law. So they initially refused Red's request to marry the 18-year-old Ellen, but she was a feisty girl, and the couple did wed, with Ellen already five months pregnant, at St Francis Church in Melbourne on November 15, 1850. St Francis Church is still operating in Melbourne and can be found on the corner of Lonsdale and Elizabeth Streets. St Francis is noted as Victoria's oldest Catholic church, though of course there have been many additions and alterations since Ellen and Red were in attendance. The exact circumstances are unclear, but the marriage was either a true elopement for love or the inevitable shotgun wedding that the Quinn family had dreaded. Either way, Ellen and Red returned to Beveridge married, to farm and raise their family. Mary Jane Kelly was born just a few months later, though sadly she died in infancy, the date unrecorded. The Beveridge Township was settled about a day's journey distance from Melbourne on the busy main Sydney Road, and it catered to those moving along that route. Here, Red built a timber slab home for his family, and then he returned to the goldfields in 1853 to again try his luck. Unfortunately, it didn't run to a big strike, but he must have managed a living for a while, and he returned with some cash on hand. Alan had given birth to his daughter Annie, that November, and he seems to have arrived home to them soon afterwards. He settled in, purchasing a town block, and also 41 acres just out of town. Red was working at building, and the family was accumulating assets and impressive land holdings. Things were looking up for this ex-convict. Now this is the kind of thing that would not happen to an Irish criminal who'd served his sentence in Ireland. So I guess if there's an upside to the cruel fate of transportation to a country halfway around the world, it would be that you had plenty of new opportunities, if you had the discipline and ability to take advantage of them. Sadly, many convicts lacked that discipline, as evidenced by the very behaviour that got them into the convict pickle in the first place. 
but Red certainly looked to be on a good path in those early years. The Little Kelly family continued to grow, and towards the end of 1854, young Edward, or Ned as he would become known, was born. That the upheaval of the Eureka stockade occurred around the same time, in the gold-mining town of Ballarat, makes for an interesting reflection. Given Ned's own rebellion and the defiance of authority he adopts later in his adulthood, we will look at the Eureka Rebellion in a later episode, as it's another important event in our Australian histories. Baby Ned was baptised by Father Charles O'Hay from St Paul's in Coburg, and interestingly, O'Hay was to be present at other pivotal times in Ned's short life, so he maintained an ongoing connection with the family. In these early years, the future seemed positive for Red and Ellen, and we can assume they were happy with the direction of their lives, Traffic was increasing on the Sydney-Melbourne road and Beveridge was expected to prosper. But actually, by 1856, the travellers were beginning to avoid the hilly path through Beveridge, instead taking bypass routes to the east or west. By then, Red had taken out substantial mortgages, so as Beveridge's prospects fell, so too did his. The gamble hadn't paid off and he fell into debt and was soon forced to sell the farm and half his town block with the house. He had to move the family into a shack he'd built on the remaining quarter acre. Sadly, these early Kelly buildings no longer survive. It's not clear how much impact Red's drinking may have had on their fluctuating fortunes, but Ellen herself was no shrinking violet, and was known to imbibe to excess on occasion. She was a pretty formidable woman by all accounts, and could get a bit mouthy even physical despite her small stature. But despite those troubles, the Kelly brood continued to increase, as tended to happen in those days. In June 1857, Maggie was born. Then July the following year, Jim came along. Red kept at the hard work, though, and steadily rebuilt his assets. Three years later, he had purchased another 21 acres and built the family a new home, complete with its own well in the garden. So, all mod cons for this new Kelly home, then. <laughs> Lucky Kellys. Dan was born while they all lived in this home, in June of 1861, and then Kate was born in July of 1863. So there were six little Kelly mouths to feed after 13 years of marriage. This home, where Dan and Kate were born, still stands, on a much smaller divided block, at Beveridge on the aptly named Kelly Road. Beveridge has developed all around the old Kelly home in recent years, and what's left of it now stands amongst a suburban streetscape of contemporary homes. For years it was fenced off to preserve what was left, but otherwise just left mouldering away. It was sad to see, considering its history, but in recent times it seems the Victorian government may be about to spend some heritage money to restore and preserve what's left. That'll be great news if it does come off. The elder Kelly children attended the Beveridge Catholic School, then held in the church, which was completed there in 1858. I see this as an indication that Red and Ellen did want their kids to prosper and gain as much advantage as possible, as sending children to school then was a fee for service arrangement. You can imagine if they had no respect for a formal education, they would not have forked out the money. That church still stands, but it's now private property. During this period, Allen's family were farming land near Wallen Wallen, just to the north. 
a homestead they lived in there is still standing and apparently contains some family graffiti, naughty Ned having carved his EK initials into one of the wooden doors. Interestingly, those same EK initials would become notorious when he later used the design as a brand for his sometimes stolen horses. By this time, their extended families, the Quinns and the Kellys, had started to come to the attention of the local police. Red's brothers and sisters had made their way out from Ireland in 1857 and had likewise settled locally, the boys now getting into trouble on several occasions. And Ellen's brothers were also running wild, getting an unfortunate reputation for petty theft and troublemaking. They were all drawing a little too much attention from the authorities for Red's liking. This, along with the knowledge that Beveridge was never going to realise its early promise as a thriving, prosperous Sydney-Melbourne stopover, convinced Red that a move north to Avenal might be a good idea. Maybe starting with a clean slate was the way to go, leaving the troubled Quinn and Kelly boys behind. Maybe Avenal further north on that same Sydney-Melbourne route looked like a much more viable place to prosper. So, on that positive note, we'll finish today's episode with the Kelly family making a move to Avenal. Their time there would see many momentous events occurring, and it marks some big changes for the family. I look forward to exploring those events with you in episode 4 in a fortnight. Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Histories is spelt with I-E-S. And contact details can be found on the tab there also if you'd like to get in touch. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a wonderful fortnight and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.